right, hello Karis families and welcome to the Karis podcast. We are so glad you're here with us today. I'm excited about this podcast. We have with us Jen Pohl. Jen and I'm Katie Tuck. We are going to be talking today about living books. We're going to um, talk about um, what living books are, why read them, where you can find them, and what to do if my kid doesn't like them. Yes. So anytime I'm looking for a book, Jen, I always go to you. So. Oh, man. <laughs> so I'm very Hi, excited Grace. to learn from you today. Um, so thanks for joining us today. Yep. Um, we are going to start off. If I'm going to ask you the question, uh, why living books? Yes. Why, why, living? why living books? Why read a living book? Yeah. You all, uh, this is something I care deeply about. Um, I think a number of years ago, God opened my heart to this idea, and it has just flooded, literally, our house. Um, we are now <laughs> overrun with just beautiful books. And so <clears throat> I said to Katie in preparation for this podcast that all I'm really doing is parroting all of those people that I have learned from. So I'm going to start the question of why read living books um, with a quote Ooh. from one of my favorite current living books authors, Oh, Andy Wilson. Yeah. Um, those of you in my fourth grade classroom know that I have recommended his podcast, Stories Are Soul Food. I think it's just tremendous. And so in his very first episode, he said... Um, are you giving your children stories that reinforce what is true, good, and beautiful, that honor the honorable and damn the damnable? Are you reading stories with your kids that align their loyalties and fuel them and touch them in ways that God designed? Ultimately, this will make the bones of their imagination stronger or weaker. Hmm. Um, That's really good. It is not an exaggeration that I wept when Endy said that because it just spoke so deeply in my heart about why I think this matters. Um, stories, stories create in us a moral imagination and um, what sort of morals we're developing through these stories deeply matters mm -hmm. because um, our worldview, our Christian worldview is paramount and ultimately matters. So um, I think that quote sums up why it matters. I approached this podcast with two assumptions. The first is that because um, we are sending our children to a classical Christian school, most of us probably already have uh, an underlying belief, even if we've never stated it, that quality literature matters, yes. good books matter, mm -hmm. um, and that our, the imagine, our own imaginations as adults, but certainly the imaginations of our children and the development of those imaginations, that we already value that happening. And so this idea or the question of why read living books, I think it's an easy sell, if mm -hmm. I could say it that way, to this group of people. Mm -hmm. um, what we feed on matters deeply, mm -hmm. and what we feed our children uh, matters even more. Mm -hmm. N.D. Wilson, um, if you listen to his podcasts, his analogy is all about the food that we feed our children. Our children are going to feed on something. They have to feed on something to live. Imaginations have to feed on something mm -hmm. to live. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so if we're providing just chips and salsa to our children, right, his analogy of food, um, if we're just providing chips and salsa to our children, they're not going to grow strong. Their moral, their moral imagination, their imaginations uh, will be weakened and they will suffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we're laying a feast for them, food that uh, nourishes the soul, um, our children will grow stronger. Their, their moral imaginations, their imaginations will go sh- grow stronger. Oh, that's why living books. Oh, that's so great. Thanks. What a what a sell. <laughs> Actually, let me say one more thing because I just read this. C.S. Lewis said once, I can't remember the context with which he said it. I, I think I'm remembering it was from a letter. Nonetheless, C.S. Lewis, who I think we, we know, um, did not spend most of his life as a professing Christian. He came to his um, beliefs later in life. But he said once that uh, he came to know Christ. He came to accept Christ because he found the gospel message in every story he'd ever read. And he could no longer deny it. Wow. Um, and it was because of those stories that started in his childhood and carried into his his, his adulthood. Mm. So stories have power. Yes, they're they nourishing. absolutely do. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis. And D. Wilson. Great guys. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. Okay, so what are living books? Will you just do a little definition for us? Or yeah. A big definition for us? Let's, <laughs> let's flesh this out. <laughs> I think some of you listening probably think you just know it when you see it. It's sort of a sixth sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I can walk into a bookstore now, and I feel like my eyes can just see. In a sea of 3,000 books, I can see the four or five living books, and I'm just drawn to them. You start to know what they look like and what they smell like. Mm-hmm. When you read the first few lines, you you start to just immediately understand mm-hmm. if this is a, a book full of life or or not. Um, but for those of us who haven't yeah, necessarily yeah. grown up on living books or started with living books, how do you attune your taste? Yes. <clears throat> so, um, there is another podcast, which I would highly commend to people. It's called The Delectable Education. Um, it actually comes out of the Charlotte Mason tradition, which we know has is close, close cousins. Close to us, yes. Yes, yes absolutely. To, to the classical schools. Um, and the, it's three ladies, a mother and a daughter, and then a third lady who I will talk about later. Um, but the mother and the daughter are so interesting in that the mom has actually been blind since childhood. And she has a number of kids, can't remember how many, but a slew of children, homeschooled them all in the Charlotte Mason tradition. And the oldest daughter is the one on the podcast with her. So this daughter was raised in the Charlotte Mason or classical tradition. Um, And now they're helping train other mothers on how to do this in their own homes. And they are so, they're just such beautiful women. They care so deeply about learning and education and especially about books. So in one of their early podcasts, they shared an acronym for how to identify a living book. And I think that's it's a, a really helpful way to talk through this. I think Katie maybe came across this same thing. Do you want to tell everybody what the acronym is? Well, sure. I was in prepar- preparation, actually, for this podcast. I found that podcast, yep. so I hadn't listened to it before. <laughs> but it was Emily Kaiser saying that she came up with this acronym, um, L. So living, L-I-V-I-N-G. L is for literary power. I is for ideas. V, virtuous. I, inspiring. N, narrative. And G, generational. Yes. And she put all of those in the category of imagination. Everything, she said, could be listed under 
growing your imagination. Yeah. Yeah. So. You can't talk about living books and you can't uh, learn to love living books if you don't value imagination and love imagination. Real quick before we go through each of these letters, um, I think I said on the last podcast, or perhaps I just said it when I was um, talking to someone else recently, but I did not grow up with a deep tradition of living books. Um, I mostly lived on the Babysitter Club series. (laughs) I know we all did. Uh, And my interest and my taste began and ended there. I never really got past that. I actually remember being in middle school English class. And I I think I did say this part on the last podcast. School was very, very difficult for me. It was very tough for me to um, learn across all subjects, especially English and especially math. And I deeply loved our English teacher but I loathed the books she made me read. Mm. I did my best on them because I respected and loved her, um, but I, I just hated those books. I remember reading Island of the Blue Dolphin yeah. and thinking it was the most absurd thing that anybody could make me spend my time on. Yes, I know. Hmm. Um, and, and what I, in the last few years, as God has grown me in this way, what I've come to understand is I just did not know that imagination mattered. I, I really deeply believed in facts and that, that my deep belief in facts led me um, for the next decade to two decades um, until my imagination started to be cultivated. Um, and now that I can see that that's what I was lacking in my childhood and why I hated these books and why I did not think they were a value and was perfectly content in my babysitter club books. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we come back to this living books idea and the acronym living. Hmm. And now I value it in a way that I just couldn't have as a child. That's great. Um, So the idea of narration and books um, growing your imagination, the L, the literary quality. Um, Stories matter. Stories mean something. There is a power in stories. N.D. Wilson actually talks about that God wired us in such a way that stories... um, stick with us and are ingrained more deeply in us than any other thing that we can encounter. Um, And so the idea of literary quality is that these books really do have power. The stories really do matter. Mm -hmm. And so we're picking stories that are lasting, that matter, that they themselves have value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned something they could be, I think you were alluding to the fact that they could be narrated Mm -hmm. as well. A living story, a living book can be narrated even if it's a science book or a history book, um, they're written in such a way with such a narrative quality that a student could tell back everything that they heard Mm -hmm. in that beautiful language. So that's the L, literary quality. Wonderful. Should we do the I? I, yes, ideas. I, ideas. Um, Charlotte Mason said once, ideas are food for the mind. Mm -hmm. They leave us pondering and wanting more. In the Charlotte Mason tradition, I think we talk about it a little bit more in classical, but if you're um, reading or thinking about or encountering folks in the Charlotte Mason tradition, they talk all the time about the science of relations, Mm -hmm. um, that you're leaving your children with ideas that they are then connecting across subjects, across years, across genre, um, and it's the science of relations, these ideas coming together in the minds of our students on their own, without prompting, without us taking them by the hand and pointing them to, you know, from A to B, but rather we're just allowing them to sit with these ideas for as many days or weeks 
or years as it takes yeah. to connect these things on our on their own. And so the books have to be filled with these ideas that matter. So when they're connecting these things, when the science of relations is happening to them, they are bringing together ideas um, that have meaning. I was just talking to a parent of a student in one of our upper grades mm -hmm. in our high school, and she was saying how touched she was and how and she, she, her daughter was having, I don't know what she was talking about, something she was growing in, mm -hmm. um, in her character, I uh -huh. believe, in some interactions she was having. And she brought in Play-Doh and compared it to something she was learning in Shakespeare and then just brought it to her everyday oh. life and what she was thinking through in this relationship yes. and her own heart, her own life. And her mom was saying, this is why I love the school. This is why I love classical education. And again, this, these living books, yes, uh, these sustaining books that have been there across generations and that inspire imagination. We're not talking just like fairy tale imagination. Like you said, the science of relations, being yes. able to relate that to your everyday life, growing in character and virtue and wisdom. And then, I don't know, being able to relate it as a, as a high school, a young high schooler, yeah. is just beautiful. Yeah. They carry this within them. Um, and when the time is right, right, God is calling forth these things and bringing it back up and helping them make sense of what it is that they know. The idea was always there and it was always worthy on its own, right? But now it's coming back up and they're able to make sense of it in a way that is going to now stick with them mm -hmm. for their entire lives. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. Angelina Stanford and her um, Literary Life podcast, which I think I talked about last time, highly recommend that one as well. Um, but I've heard C.S. Lewis refer to this as well. But I, my quote is, or my I most recently heard it from Angelina, but um, they talk about books being mirrors or windows, Yes, right? Mm -hmm. In a non-living book, um, what Charlotte Mason <laughs> affectionately calls twaddle, twaddle. <laughs> <laughs> um, a non-living book is a mirror. It, it reflects back what we already know or what we're already experiencing, right? Like, I don't know the real number, but we could assume that it's a very high percentage of books on your public library shelf would fall into this category. They are written um, to, for children to be able to see what it is they're already experiencing in this world. And we, we, rather than give our kids mirrors, we want to give them windows. We want to give them books that help them see into another time or another place that lead to these ideas. Um, so I think that's just another example. Those books that she read, right. those were windows. Mm -hmm. And she was able to look into them and keep them until she was ready mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, to do something meaningful with them. Absolutely. Yeah, beautiful. And then be able to discuss them with fellow classmates oh. and our great teachers who lead these discussions. I feel like that's just a, a little side, but being able to talk about living books in a classroom with other people and seeing how they are looking through the window. Yes. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. And we might look through the window. We might be looking through the same window, but have a different picture yeah. of what's on the other side of it. Right. Um, I, I hear all the time when folks are discussing living books and quality literature that books are never meant. They're never written with an intention of teaching us something. And yet they are the books that we learn from, mm. uh, which I, I, I have always 
my thought when I hear that is that these windows, we, we all have the opportunity to see a different scene when we look through it based on our own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, that book is not meant to tell us exactly what it is we see when we look out that window, mm. but rather we're going to see different things depending on where we are in the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Are we on V? Yes. Flush chat. <laughs> uh, v is a virtuous. Um, these books give us ideas to ponder. I mean, right, it's so closely connected with I, I, the ideas. But virtuous, they give us the good ideas to ponder. But they are not preachy, and they are not moralistic. Hmm. Uh, I think often we, it would be easy to pick up a book that, rep, uh, that looks like it could be a living book, but it really is very preachy and very moralistic. And, and I think we all know that most times our children do not, they see through that. They, sure. they don't want to yeah, feast on that. Right. Um, so the virtuous would be, uh, well, I think everything that we've just been talking about, these ideas could mean something different. What am I mean to say, Katie? You might have to find the words for me. Um, there is a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, but you are not meant to hear exactly what the author is saying, but rather you are, you have the opportunity to apply what you're hearing, the ideas that you're hearing to what you know about life and interpret it as such. Okay. Um, yes. It's not, there's no line in there that tells you, right? There's no fable where it tells you what the moral is right. at the end of the story, right. but rather you get to consider the ideas and the virtues that it's helping you come to. Well, it reminds me a bit of that C.S. Lewis quote you were talking about even before he became a believer. Yeah. When he read these good books, he actually was presented the gospel because these good books show us like creation, mm -hmm. the fall, mm -hmm. redemption, and restoration in all of life because yes. that's true. Yes. That is yes. what reality is. And so I think that's part of what you're saying, too. It's like if you're, if you're actually following what is reality mm -hmm. in life, even people who aren't believers know this is reality. Yes. Um, then that's something you're going to be drawn to. Yes. Um, I don't, tell me if we should not go down this, this rabbit hole, but it, that go. leads me to think about fairy tales yes. and the yes. value of fairy tales. Should we go there now or Let's do you want to do wait? It. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Grimm brothers, of course, were the first to endeavor in a really serious way to write down what we now call fairy tales, but they were really folk traditions mm -hmm. that they wrote down. And um, the Grimm brothers were actually uh, very strong Christians. And what they began to see across cultures and across time was that every fairy tale coming out of the folk tradition, the oral tradition, is at least in part, if not the whole, the gospel message. Mm -hmm. That the gospel had just thoroughly saturated through the entire world. That then the folk tales, the oral traditions that were being told across those cultures, um, grasped portions of that gospel message. And they were starting to tell their stories in light of the gospel message. And so they saw it as their Christian duty to gather these mm -hmm. for all of us to see the beauty of the message in God's word mm -hmm. across time, across cultures. Um, I cannot underscore enough <laughs> the value of reading good folk tales, yes. good fairy tales. Yes. And there are some that are that that have gone to the preachy moralistic side. Mm -hmm. Um, but the Grimm brothers are great. That's yeah. Should be read. That's wonderful. Yeah. I was telling Jen that I think it would be good and helpful, at least for me, to 
do a whole podcast on, on fairy, fairy tales. tales. Um, oh. I feel like I just dipped my toes in, Me but too. I'm very encouraged. Well, and also creeped out sometimes. Sometimes. Some of them are, some of them are dark. The, the question of are fairy tales appropriate for children yes, has yes, been yes. asked throughout time. Yeah. Um, you know, the Victorians, fairy tales had to leave the nursery. Uh, they were not appropriate for children. And Chesterton said, so the question then was, um, are children going to be filled with fear because of fairy tales? There it is. Yeah. And Chesterton, who deeply believed that children should be um, should encounter fairy tales and live in fairy tales, said that that was nonsense because our children already know that there are scary things in the world. And the stories affirm what they already know to be true. Don't tell them that there are no dragons. Give them St. George who can slay those dragons. Oh, that's so good. Our children know what's happening around them in the world. We need to equip their imagination to deal with it and have hope. And that hope is not because of a fictional character. That hope is because that's the gospel. Yes. And they they know that. Our children know that. They do. Amen. Okay. Fairy tale. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Which gets us to the second I in living. The books are inspiring. Mm -hmm. as you're reading these, you're filled with passion. You're filled with inspiration, mm-hmm. no matter what the content is. I have some books on my shelf, literally, Katie, about ants. They are living books about <laughs> ants, and you are just so eager to get outside and lie on the sidewalk and watch those ants, um, because no matter the content, a living book is inspiring. Absolutely. You are drawn into that world. Hmm. Yep. This is a total aside, but did you watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids growing up? Yes. With the ants. <laughs> I think I would have been drawn to those books after that movie because I love that ant hey, and Honey, I Shrunk yes, the Kids. Yes, who did not love those movies? You. Me. <laughs> I remember thinking this is so absurd. Uh, of course it's me bringing up the movie. <laughs> We're talking about living books, but yeah. Oh, but I wanted to learn so much about ants after that, so I should have come to your bookshop, Jen. <laughs> All right, anyway, sorry. Okay, so inspiring, yes, inspiring books, full books about ants. Full books about ants <laughs> that you walk away from thinking, it's awesome. That is glorious. Yeah. Those little critters are glorious. They really are. Yep. It's true. <laughs> it's true about all living books, yes. even ants. Yep. Uh, narrative quality is narrative. the N mm-hmm. in living. Um, so... One critical component, it can't be considered a living book if it is not written in a narrative style, Uh, which is not to say that poetry is not living, but rather that's just a different genre. So we're talking about books. Um, And so, right, we just talked about the ants. Um, These books are written in a narrative style uh, where the story is a beautiful story. Our children should be able to walk away from that book, no matter the topic. And like I said earlier, narrate what they heard Mm -hmm. because the story is uh, moving through their brains and their minds and their soul. Mm -hmm. uh, And they can tell that story back to you. Yep. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then the G, generational. (laughs) (laughs) Not uh, only that these books have stood the test of time, um, but that every generation of reader want or every generation of person wants to read them right Mm. the book is equally as appropriate for a seven-year-old as it is for a 15-year-old as it is for a 90-year-old they're the books that you come keep coming back to Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect it's in my commonplace that's in front of me somewhere but I don't know exactly where so I will just off the cuff I think it was C.S. Lewis 
who said something about uh, the book that you pick up as a 10 year old. You should, how does that go? You, do you I'm know? nodding because yeah, I was thinking of that same quote, but it is. Katie, I have it written right here. You do. You take, it's you literally take it. in front of me. Okay, perfect. Take it away. Take it away. <laughs> no book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally uh, or even more worthy reading at the age of 50. The only imaginative works which we ought to grow out of are those which would have been better to not have read at all. Yes. Yes. You must have said this at some other point, but it's, I was thinking of the same type of thing. I'm almost inclined to set it up as a canon that a children's story, which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. <laughs> <laughs> I love CS. Not only is he so quotable, but even that one liner, you're like, Oh goodness. Yep. I can consider that. Yes. Uh, for years to come. Absolutely. Yep. Great. I thought I had another quote, but I don't. I don't. Go ahead. Next question. Next question. Where do we go? Okay, so we've got these living books. Mm -hmm. um, you've given us lots of food for thought on what a living book is. Yep. And why living books. So where do I find living books? Yeah. You can walk into a bookstore and you can smell it. You yep. can taste it. You can see it. Yep. Um, but Besides giving them. you a call, Jen, and saying, can we just follow you into <laughs> Half by Price Books? <laughs> yeah. Tell us where we can find these living books. Yeah. Um, let me say one more thing to give people context, because I think I get a lot of the question, well, why are they all older books? Why are we not, why are not we reading a lot of contemporary books that we would consider living? Um, and I don't want to give anybody the impression that there are not beautiful living books living book authors currently publishing. There certainly are. Mm -hmm. um, but two things happened in the late 50s. And I don't, I meant to find the exact date, but I, I didn't do that. Um, nonetheless, um, so of course we know as we moved through the 20th century, we saw a turning of the tide in, in terms of uh, virtue and <clears throat> what was being valued in our society, right? And of course that starts to be reflected in all aspects of our lives, including what is now being printed. But the major push that happened, it was sometime in the late 50s, for the very first time, um, the federal government decided to give federal funding to yeah. school libraries. Mm -hmm. So for the very first time, publishers had money that they'd never had before at their disposal to print. And so the bar for what became necessary in order to be worthy to be printed was lowered. Mm -hmm. Suddenly and at a rush, they just had to get things out the door and on um, school library bookshelves. And so because those two things were happening simultaneously, this, the, um, the market was just flooded with new authors and new books. And of course, the funding has only increased since then, and we've mm -hmm. seen we've seen the effects of it. So that is not to say that we can't find great living authors right now. We certainly can, um, but most of the great living books that we're looking for and reading are mostly published before the middle of 1950. Mm -hmm. um, some of my favorite authors were publishing in the 50s and 60s, but that is roughly why we see. Um, the majority of the books we're looking for coming from earlier in the 20th century or even earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So where do we find them? Where do we find them? Where do we find them? I think that I would encourage people to, to start if this is a new idea and you're feeling a little bit stuck. 
I would start with just one or two authors. Mm-hmm. One or two authors that, um, of course, are living authors or living, their books are living, mm-hmm. uh, but that they're still easily found on a public library shelf. So you're not investing money, um, but you have access to them because lots of the books we're looking for are no longer on public library shelves. Mm -hmm. So let's start with a few authors that are and that wrote prolifically so that you can feast for a little while without having to worry about your next title. And a few authors that come to mind that fall into that category, um, Jean Craighead George, Sometimes I mix her name up. I think that's her name. Uh, she, my, my, my son particularly loves her books. He's always loved her books. And there's a lot of adventure. So this would fall more in adventure. Lots of animal stories. I think it could be appropriate. I mean, he was reading them in the second grade. But I think if they could even take a kid up to fifth or sixth grade. Um, she has lots. And she's the type of author that um, I don't feel like I need to pre-read them. I've never encountered anything that I would take exception to my kids reading in any of her works. And so I feel good letting them have her. So she would be what? Uh, readily available at the public library. Great. So you could find her. Lois Lenski would be another one. Um, and Kate Sardy, and that's S-E-R-E-D-Y. Those two, um, I just can't say enough about the virtue in their books without being preachy at all. These women um, wrote for children because they deeply loved children and good literature and imaginations and their stories mm. are just incredible. They're, they're relatively easy to still find mm-hmm. at public libraries and they too run the gamut of age ranges. Mm-hmm. Some of their books are going to be adventure and some would cross over into fantasy Um mostly historical fiction adventure, mm-hmm. but not solely there. Some fantasy. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I would. Ju- I was just going to say, for our listeners, I'm going to put these authors in oh, our yes. show notes um, and maybe some links as well. So don't feel like you need to write them all down right now. I'll make sure to get spelling from Jen. Yes. We'll put those there. But um, And also, I will say, you introduced me, Kate, uh, Jen introduced me to Kate Sardi oh. over, actually, quarantine. quarantine. You read together over Zoom, um, which was lovely, and all of my kids enjoyed it, and there's an age range of uh, six years, Mm -hmm. and they all enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. My oldest wasn't always there, but he was asking what was going on when he wasn't. Yes. Oh, is that beautiful to hear? Is that beautiful to hear? I would, can I add two more? I don't want to give too long of a list. No, Um, this is great. And then I'll give some book lists to also start with um, that you could trust anything on these lists, but the next one would be Jean Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z. Um, some of her books are actually on the book list for different grades at Karis. Mm-hmm. Jean wrote mostly historical fiction, um, but because she's a more contemporary author, her books are easy to find on library shelves. Um, again, just a beautiful narrative quality, everything that that woman writes. Um, even if it's more of a picture book, I eagerly devour. Uh, she's she's fabulous. And then the last one I would recommend, he's a little bit harder to find, but because he's a Wisconsin author, oh, I think every household should read him, Sterling North. Oh, yeah. So Rascal mm-hmm. is his most famous book. 
the second most, well, I shouldn't say the second most famous. Uh, Rascal is certainly his most famous book. Um, he also wrote The Wolfling. So Rascal is a story of his own childhood. Mm-hmm. The Wolfling is the story of his grandfather's childhood. Oh. So um, read Rascal, and then you can actually go to Edgerton, and you can tour his house where the book is set. So it's just a beautiful thing to do with your family. Rascal's really. on our reading list. So if you are if you have a Karis student. Oh, it is? Yes. Mm-hmm. We, we do read Rascal. I don't remember what grade, but um, they do. And I heard about you going to visit Sterling North's cabin yep. last in the last few weeks. Is that right? Or no? We went about a year ago. Oh, you did? Yep. Okay. But I just heard about it, yep. and it must have made a big impression. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Okay. It's great. I'd love, I love to do that. Um, so a few book lists. Um, again, these are book lists that I pull from regularly. Because these book lists are all coming out of the classical or the Charlotte Mason tradition, I have never questioned a single book I've pulled from it and given to my children. Um, Cindy Rollins, Mm -hmm. who now does the Literary Life podcast with Angelina Stanford, but used to do the Mason Mason Jar. jar, Mm -hmm. She has, if you just Google Cindy Rollins book lists, um, she has done a few different ones, but uh, she homeschooled nine children she now just deeply loves mothers doing homeschool so her recommendations are always a hit um and she's so well read um the second would be memoria press Mm -hmm. um i think they publish classical curriculum Mm -hmm. um they have a boys list and a girls list by martin i can't think of his last name but if you just google memoria press boys reading list and girls reading list and those lists are really picture book through upper teens so you're going to get the gamut um, of age ranges from those books that one's a little bit more difficult in that it's not organized by grade um, or age level so you have to look up a lot of books to sort of get an idea of what would be appropriate for the age and the reading ability of your child but great books Um, I have especially I think Boys' books tend to be a little bit harder to find, mm-hmm. um, or ideas, I should say, for boys' books. And I have really appreciated his list for boys. Okay, we have great. loved a lot of his books. Um, the Classical Reader mm-hmm. comes out of, I, I think that that one's from um, Classic Academic Press. Again, just a really great reading list. One that I think we overlook so often, and it, it hurts me because I even overlook it so much, our Karis summer reading list mm. is phenomenal. Mm. The books on that list really are tremendous. And so that one is sitting on class reach just waiting for you. <laughs> and I would point you to that. Um, we have really read a lot of beautiful books from that list as well. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, which is the most overwhelming, that I think is the greatest treasure trove. I may have mentioned this last time. I can't remember. Ambleside Online, which is an online Um, curriculum for Charlotte Mason, they make their reading list fully available for free. And so you have to do a little work to access it because what it is, it's a huge Excel document. And of course, in the Charlotte Mason tradition, all of your curriculum is living books. You are literally reading everything, even in math for the most part. And so by grade, It is then books for different um, subjects and uh, different topics by grade. And then for each grade, there's a list of free reads. So when I'm looking for, even let's say in history, we're um, doing story of the world, but I will use that Ambleside online 
book list to look for living books to supplement story of the world with my kids. So I pull other areas, but if you just filter for free reads, it gives you free reads by grade. Um, again, it's the most remarkable book list I've ever seen compiled wow. and it's readily available and free. That's helpful. Yeah. So that's where I would point you to in terms of ideas. Okay. Yeah. Great. Have you ever used Honey for a Child's Heart? I have not. Okay. I have not. And I also didn't mention um, Sarah. Oh, goodness. Uh, oh, um, Mackenzie. Yes. Yeah, Sarah Read McKenzie. Aloud Re Revival. Revival. Yes. Those okay. two would also be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't personally use them, but I know that they are tremendous. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, we've used Honey for a Child's Heart, and it was a helpful resource. But all these others, I think, have the I, gamut. This is wonderful. I would imagine that the overlap between all of these is also pretty significant. Probably. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Great. Um, last question. What do I do if my kid doesn't like them? <laughs> what if What if my child doesn't want to read yes. or doesn't like the books that I'm putting in front of them? Yeah. Or her. Yeah. I, I, I would, I am, my response to that is only going to be to say what Andy Wilson said in his podcast, which is entitled the picky reader. Mm -hmm. um, and so Andy Wilson is the one who uses this analogy about a feast. Um, <clears throat> and the living books would be the feast that we spread for our children to grow on. Um, which is not to say that sometimes offering them a book that is, you know, a bag of chips or a Dorito is not okay. It is okay. Mm -hmm. We just can't grow on that. We can't sustain ourselves on that. Um, in our fourth grade classroom, we talk all the time about feast books versus Friday night pizza books. And so that's the analogy we're using there. Oh, and right. the kids know. They're, they're, I'm getting questions weekly. Mrs. Pohl, do you think that this is a Friday night pizza book or do you think this is a feasting <laughs> bag? And I turn the question back on them for the most part and ask them to consider what they're reading. And, and th so they're starting to think of it on their own. But even just giving them that analogy has helped them deeply understand the value of what they're picking. And so that would be my first recommendation. Give this, give your kids this analogy or another analogy to help them connect a value to this activity of reading, to see how they can, to build their own desire to grow in what they're reading. Um, the other thing that ND does, which I just think is so helpful towards the end of that episode, he makes a distinction between, um, uh, if they're just trying to exercise control, if it's a behavior issue versus a true dislike for a book, mm -hmm. because there are times where it is just a control issue sure. uh, and we can't allow them to give up on a book if what they need is actually discipline because they're trying to control a situation that is not theirs to control right. um, because it is not in their best interest to not pick up living books, to not fall in love with these types of books. Um, and so I think... But so, so I do think we need to discern if it is a control or a, a discipline issue versus a dislike for these books. The other thing, I think I said this recently to somebody else. I listened to Andy Wilson, and I actually listened to his mom, who has another podcast. Um, his mom's name is Nancy Wilson. And I'm listening to them in these two podcasts remember things from earlier years. So Andy is remembering them as a child. Nancy is reflecting on them as the mother in that situation. And it's so beautiful to see her parenting choices and her reflection on her parenting choices. And then hear Andy, Andy's um, reflection on how that sat with him and what that did for him. Hmm. And so he was a picky reader. 
he shares this in the podcast. And one thing that his mom did, she realized that she needed to sweeten the deal for him. She needed to get him out of the only genre, and in some cases, the only one or two books that he was willing to read over and over and over. And so she picked a, a, a King's Solomon mine, mm-hmm. King Solomon's mine, mm-hmm. and he she read a high adventure chapter and then just left the book and walked away and he was so intrigued by what was happening that he then had to pick the book up and of course finish the book and so I do think there is um time where we have to help our children see the beauty of this we have to help them also fall in love and start to desire these things and often it means we have to sweeten the deal for them Mm. Uh, I have one at home that is a very strong reader does not prefer to read, will not use his free time in that way. Um, And so we are sweetening the deal for him. We have a bucket of treats that are kept on the shelf in his closet. And at night we go upstairs and we get to pick a treat and we just lay in bed and we read while we eat our treat. And it is such a nice, not only tradition, which I think sweetens the deal, anytime Mm -hmm. we can involve tradition or start traditions around something sweetens the deal, but the actual physical sweet treat that he wouldn't otherwise get is making him eager for this time. Sure. Yeah. We started reading, um, read alouds around the campfire a number of years ago and it has been a family tradition and you know even in the spring when we're getting ready for camping season my family members are texting me what's the read aloud this summer what are we going to be reading these traditions and sweetening this deal idea i think it really matters and it has stuck with children as young as five all the way up to grandma who is not quite five (laughs) (laughs) i love that jen so give them time sweeten the deal that's great. Be discerning yeah. of what the what the underlying issue is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I would say. Love it. That's Thanks. very helpful. Thank you, Jen. Mm-hmm. Anything you'd like to leave us with um, as we go? A quote or a, a recommendation or a... I'll ask you for your recommendation at the very end. Oh, okay. But just, so this is not that This one. is not that part oh, yet. Goodness. Um <laughs> Can I read one more quote? Because I, I get, yeah. well, actually, let me, can I deal, do two more questions that I get from people? Yes, that would be great. Um, the first is, but aren't living books expensive? Mm. I can't invest in this, and they're hard to get at my public library. And the answer, of course, is yes. They are, for the most part. Um, there's ways, though, that you can start to build a home library um, that reduce the cost. And I think those are valuable to share. Number one, so many of these books be- because they have such literary value, and that was recognized when they were published, are available in soft cover. So you can pick these up for relatively cheap. But I would first encourage you to start to read some of them. Don't buy anything. Get what you can get your hands on for free and develop some loves for authors or genres so that you're spending any money that you could put towards it wisely. Mm. You're not just starting to fill your shelves um, without a lot of discernment. Do the discernment first. Take some time to do that. Mm -hmm. And then I have found so many books, and I mean so many books, from public library book sales. They just want to get them off their shelves, and I'm picking books up for $0.10 or $0.25 um, that everyone else is overlooking because they look old or tattered. Um, So I would, I regularly go to every book sale at a public library that I can find because the stuff they're getting rid of is the stuff I want. It is Ah. not the stuff that most other people are there for. So you can certainly find lots of these great treasures. You're giving us your secret. I know. (laughs) I'm always there the night before. (laughs) I love it. It's true. Uh, And then 
C.S. Lewis deals with this question, I think, so brilliantly, um, which is the idea of, well, aren't my kids going to encounter things that are no longer appropriate, right? Aren't they going to hear about the, the thing that's jumping to mind right now for me is slavery, right? Mm. Or the discrimination of a certain group or class of people in these old books where it was more culturally appropriate then for these things or ideas. Um, and I'm hesitant to give my kid a book where they're going to read about this in such a way that it makes it sound normal and acceptable. And that's not a value my family has. So do I need to worry about that and consider that? And I think the question is yes, of course. Um, certainly. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, Old books have mistakes, but those mistakes are confirmed and they are known. There is a blindness in new books. We don't yet know our mistakes. We know the mistakes of eras past, and so it gives us the opportunity to talk about those things with our kids. Whereas if we're giving them a newer book, right, it's probably not going to glorify um, the treatment of women right, in the 1800s, or slavery, or things like that. Um, but what it does have, we don't yet know the impact of its potential evil or its potential mistakes. Um, and so giving them the books that's, that have those mistakes and doing it knowingly gives us, it opens the door for the conversation. Hmm. Um, yeah. That's great. So there's still a danger. We still, sure. I think we still have to know what we're giving our children. Um, but I think it opens the door rather than feeds our children something that's inappropriate or unacceptable that then they take as their own. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those spawn really good conversations. Absolutely. Ones that you wouldn't always have yeah. in that way. So it's great. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Those were my last two things. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jen. You're welcome. Now, do you have a recommendation that is even outside our subject? So ah, always this is, to grab you. I know. It was so painful to, to decide on just one. But I, I think I've landed. I would encourage everybody. My greatest recommendation for your summer is to take a nature hike with your children. Take a notebook with you. Um, and then do two things while you're on that nature hike. The first is we call it a sit spot where you find a place to sit where you're just observing what's around you um, and you sit quietly. This is painful for five minutes. Oh boy. Right? I know. We have to actually just contain ourselves for a matter of moments. Slightly easier if your children are older. Right. Not impossible if you've got toddlers. But find a sit spot for five minutes because what starts to happen is you really find in minute three or four that you start to relax you start to actually see what's around you, um, and the wildlife starts to get comfortable with you being in that spot quietly, and so they'll start to return. Mm. So often when we're on nature hikes, we don't see much. Well, we don't see much because we're lumbering in a really loud way, and we have scared everything, but when we pick a sit spot and we sit very quietly and still for a couple of minutes, they start to return. They're not um, concerned about us anymore, so we get to observe things that we wouldn't otherwise get to see. Oof. And then take that notebook yeah. and write down what you saw. Mm -hmm. More importantly, though, ask questions. And when you ask one question, ask another question based on that, and another question, and another question, and just see where that can get you. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be my encouragement for your summer. That's great. And that's that might be another podcast, Jen, that I'm oh, going to pick your brain about. So Nature lovely. walks. Oh. Yes. That's wonderful. What a great tradition to start. That's great. What Thank is your you. recommendation? Well, I'm going to have two, and they do oh, have good. to do with our podcast, actually. But um, I could actually do three. 
But you recommended this book, yes. I think, last year, Jen, to me, Tending the Heart of Virtue, How Classic Stories Awaken a Child's Moral Imagination by Vegan Guroyan. Is that correct? Um, I, no, it's not. Okay. I know that it is pronounced in a way that I would never pronounce it by looking at it, okay. but I can't remember how it's pronounced. Okay. <laughs> so, so we'll also post a link. I think that's a good idea. On our show notes, but Tending the Heart of Virtue, it's so good to talk about the subject that we've just been talking about, living books, and... Um, how important it is to use these books to awaken a child's imagination. Yep. Very hard to find. Katie knows this. Yes. The book is. Yeah. I have checked it out from interlibrary loan, so you can get it through the library, and it's a beautiful hardcover copy. I think there's only one, so you might have to take turns in the whole interlibrary system that Madison is a part of. That well, I have copy. a paperback right here, and awesome. I'm happy to lend it out if anybody wants to borrow it. Um, and then the other one that many of you may have already heard about is by Susan Schaefer McCauley called For the Children's Sake. It's called Foundations of Education for Home and School. And it's just inspiring. Talks about an overview of classical education, lots of Charlotte Mason in here. And mm, yes. as I looked through this to talk about living books with you, um, I or learned from you, I should say, on living books. I was just inspired yet again um, by her and Susan Schaefer McCauley. Her parents are... Um, Francis and Edith Schaefer yep. started Lubbery. You probably know Francis Schaefer, um, How How Shall We Then Live? Mm -hmm. And then Edith Schaefer's book, um, <clears throat> The Hidden Art of Homemaking, I love as well. Oh. That's another book I can recommend. Um, love her Writing book. Um, but anyways, so those are, those are some ones that are just staples on my shelf that I go back to over and over again. Um, so... Thank you so much for spending time with me, Jen, today, talking about this. And you are welcome. I'm so thankful you guys are doing this podcast once again so we can all learn from each other and come together and encourage one another, grow our children with wisdom. This is, this is so life-giving to me to be a part of this community. Well, thank, thank you. you, Jen. I, I feel the same way. I really love our community and mm -hmm. love learning from you and from and others here. And what a blessing it is. It is. So thanks yeah. so much. Thanks for being here today. You're welcome. Bye, Care family. Bye.